Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Children, you guys are dismissed at this time, preschoolers through fifth graders. Thanks, guys. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to Galatians chapter 1. Being Galatians 1, as you guys are turning, uh, bow with me for a, a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, you are a good God. Um, You are powerful, you are almighty. We thank you for the the truth of your death and resurrection. There's not much I can say up here that's um, any different than what has just been sung. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf that we couldn't do for ourselves. Uh, I pray that uh, for the next few minutes that we have that you would open our eyes to see your truth, open our ears, not only to hear it, but to put it into practice, open our hearts, and work in our life like only you can do through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would take just these, these two loaves and these, these fish and um, multiply exponentially the things that we, we offer up to you. Lord, I pray that um, as we look into Galatians and um, Just take this time to study your word that you would give us a a time of renewal and refreshment. God, help us to um, block out all the worries of this world and all the cares that easily entangle us and help us to focus most importantly and most directly on your son Jesus at this time. We ask that our lives would be shaped more and more into his image. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if I'd wanted to describe uh, my life as I've grown up as a a teenager and um, just the person that God has shaped me to be, I I wouldn't use the term fear to describe myself as a kid. In fact, uh, probably being a little naive and uh, thinking that I was much stronger and more indestructible than I truly am, I've been in a lot of situations that should have induced fear, but probably didn't as much as I'd, I'd like to admit. Um, there's, a, there's one night, just share this story with you really quick, there's one night that I was done playing a baseball game and my friends were getting together kind of a little bit later at night than normal, and, and so I asked my dad if I could take the 1995 Chevy Lumina that had way too much engine for a 17-year-old kid over to my, my friend's house, and it was getting pretty dark outside, and he said, yeah, go ahead, just, just be back by 11 o'clock. And there's two ways that I could go to my friend's house. I could take the scenic route, which is 25 miles an hour, little place called the Root River Parkway. You've probably heard me talk about it before, actually, and, and get through it that way. Of course, I probably wouldn't be driving 25 miles an hour through it. Or I could go the traffic light way a little bit faster, but take a little bit longer, and in my haste and in my, my desire to get to my friend's house as quickly as possible, I decided to take the scenic route. And I was busting about 40, 45, and a 25. 
as I go through on my way to my friend's house, and, and up in front of me, I could see about half a mile away, there's this little silver Honda, and it is not driving 40 or 45. It's driving like 20 or 25 as I come up on this thing. In fact, it was driving so slow, I didn't even bother to get close to the car before I passed it. I just, I just kept on going, and, and, and when I got to the silver Honda, I went a little bit faster. And I fell for the oldest trick in the book when it comes to road rage. That silver Honda, as it saw me speeding up past it, it sped up just as fast as I was going, and it was gonna be a battle for road rage. I thought, you do not understand what's happening here. I've got a Chevy Lumina with way too much engine in this car, and you are going against a 17-year-old kid, and so I, I start, I put it down. In this little 25 mile an hour speed limit zone, two lanes, just nobody else is out there getting close to dark. I'm pulling like 55, 60 miles an hour, and this guy is right alongside of me, going the same, same speed. So I'm like, okay, somebody's gonna get hurt or killed here. I slam on the brakes, not, not just like touching on the brakes, like I slammed on the brakes so that he would go real, real fast, and to my surprise, this guy slams on the brake at the very same time and I can barely get behind him. And so instead, when he slams on the brake, I did what every 17-year-old kid would do. I, I hit the gas, and I went ahead of him, and I got ahead of him, and man, he was, he was ate my dust, right? Lightning McQueen. Um, I thought he was gone. And it turned out he turned off his headlights and followed me to the next intersection. And it was a two-way stop. The traffic in front of us was crossing, but, but we had to stop. And the next thing I know, saw the worst thing that could have ever, ever been seen, is these two college-aged thugs get out of their car, this silver Honda. One of them's got a metal aluminum bat, the other one's got a wooden bat. And this guy comes up, and he just, Albert Pujols, bam, pops out my left rear taillight, just like that. The other guy's on the other side, takes the wooden bat on top of the, the back fender, just leaves this, like, Pot, pothole-sized dent in the back of my car. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't realize what you've just done because I've watched every episode of Rocky Balboa <laughs> and Crocodile Dundee. And as a 17-year-old kid, I really thought to myself what I was going to do if he tried to get in my car. I, I, was, I was getting ready to pull this move where you like open the car door real quick and slam it into him and then I was gonna grab his bat and if I could get his, chances are I could get the guy with the wooden bat too. Get up to the intersection, my reason gets the best of me. I look for the opening, lock the doors. As soon as I had the opening, I just took off and went. Never saw the guy again. And the whole time, I went off and I told my friends, about this great feat and accomplishment that I just took on two guys with baseball bats going through the parkway. Never really, really fearful. All of that changed two years later. It wasn't uh, road rage, speeding cars, had nothing to do with big weapons and bats and, and physical harm at all. All of it changed when I was 19 years old as a freshman at Mississippi State. My dad and I loaded up the same Chevy Lumina that, we that I drove through the Root River Parkway that day. We loaded it up with all of my possessions, everything I had, drove 12 hours, 750 miles from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, down to Starkville, Mississippi. Took all of 15 minutes to, to unload my life possessions 
at college at Mississippi State. And before he left, leaving me no car, just abandoned me in the middle of Mississippi. Before he left, he sticks his hand out to me in the parking lot. I'll never forget it. He says, Jared, don't mess this up. I was terrified. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't terrified of, of like disappointing my mom and dad because I knew they loved me regardless. I wasn't, wasn't scared of dropping out or, or failing in school or not doing well on academics at all. I was terrified because I was a, a Yankee in the South. I didn't know a single person down there. I didn't have a single friend that I could go to. I didn't have a car that I could get anywhere. I was at college at Mississippi State fending for my life. I thought the next four years were gonna be the loneliest four years of my entire existence. And by the way, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me as a teen. And I would say if you guys have or college students, if you're about to graduate high school, go away to school and experience it for yourself. There's, there's nothing quite like it. It was in that moment in Starkville, Mississippi, that I distinctly remember being the most fearful. And I was fearful of people, of pleasing people, fitting in with the group, uh, this, this little comic strip by Charlie Brown kind of describes a little bit of how I felt that day at Mississippi State and for the first few weeks there in college, of course, Charlie Brown is moaning and groaning. Everybody's always picking on him. He's always scared of what's going to happen next. And at the end of this comic strip, he says, I've adopted a new philosophy, only dread one day at a time. Right. Fear can be a, a very debilitating mindset. When we think about phobias, typically we, we think of people being scared of, of spiders or snakes. Maybe even you're afraid of the dark. Some people are afraid of death. Not even death, but how they're going to, get to die. Still other people are, are afraid of terrorism, maybe a diagnosis that you have no control over, or a medical issue that could, could confront you. Maybe you're, maybe you're afraid of job loss. I don't know what it is, but but today, in our world today, fear seems to be somewhat of an epidemic. In fact, there's a, a famous poet, W.H. Auden, who described these modern times as the age of anxiety. The philosopher Albert Camus labeled the last century, the 1900s, as the century of fear. And the unchallenged, the assumed understanding and conclusion of counselors, philosophers, psychologists today is that we are a human race, we are a people in America who is running scared. I love what Ed Welch puts, how he writes this in his book, uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says, teenagers are constantly making unwise decisions because of fear. Adults, too, look to people for their cues. We wait for others to take the initiative. We spend too much time wondering what others may have thought about an outfit or a comment we made in a small group meeting. We see opportunities to testify about Christ, and we avoid them. Why? Because of fear. And he says this, we are more concerned about looking silly than we are about acting sinfully. Ed Welch says, we fear people more than we fear God. Did you find Galatians 1 this morning? 
Uh, chances are if you, if you struggle with a fear of people, and, and at some point in your life, probably this describes all of us in this room, it certainly has described me. Chances are if you fear people, you are going to be a people pleaser rather than a God fearer. This morning I wanna show you how you can become a God fearer more than a people pleaser. And in Galatians 1, 10 through 24, Paul makes it absolutely clear as an apostle, and as he brings the message of the gospel to all of the people that he witnessed to, he is not going to be an, an apostle who fears or is a people pleaser. And in the process of telling us this, he gives us, gives us three words of advice for people pleasers. He tells us the production, how people pleasers are made, the problem, and then the changed person. In a people-pleasing system, how are people-pleasing people actually produced? What is the production process of that? Number two, what's the real problem with being a people-pleaser? And number three, the changed person. You're gonna see Paul on the backside of this. Uh, remember in Galatians, before we jump into this text, uh, Paul has just warned the Galatian believers that they are in danger of either deserting the gospel, the true gospel that he originally brought to them as a pioneer missionary to Galatia, or of uh, being in the process of, of doing this. Maybe they have already deserted the gospel at this moment when he writes this letter. They, they turned from the true gospel that Paul had brought to a counterfeit gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And when the false teachers arrived, here's what they did. They figured out a way if they could mar the messenger, they could mar the message itself. If they could find something wrong with Paul, they could find something wrong with Paul's message. And so from Galatians 1.10 all the way through the end of chapter two, here's what Paul does. All he does is he defends his apostleship. He tells them that he is a true apostle sent by God. And he goes through a lot of his autobiography. In his defense of his apostleship, Paul will both recall and refuse. He will recall his apostleship and his calling for God, but he refuses to do three things, and this is what's gonna guide us for the next three weeks in Galatians. Paul refuses to be a people pleaser, a power grabber, or a political player. And listen, if you are in any way thinking about ministry, if you're involved when, with the church offices of an elder or a deacon, these passages about Paul the Apostle are so critical and crucial for us to understand. He is an apostle, he is a pastor who refuses to be a people pleaser, a power grabber, or a political player. And as elders and as pastors at CBC, we should refuse to do the same. Number one in your outline, number one this morning, a people pleaser. How are they produced? How is a system of people pleasing produced? I want you to look down at Galatians. We're gonna jump around just a little bit. But start down in verse 13, Galatians 1, verse 13. Paul writes this, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Um, you've, you've probably heard this quote before. When God wants to do an impossible, things, he, uh, an impossible thing, he takes an impossible person and he crushes him. God's about to do an impossible thing. 
and he takes the impossible person, Paul, and he crushes him. Um, Paul was uh, in a system that mass-produced people-pleasers. It goes by the word Judaism, and he wasn't just uh, a religious follower of the Judaism and its, and its faith. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So extremely zealous was he that he was outdoing all of his companions in his pursuit of his religion. And his, the Pharisees were one of the most the strictest um, religious sects that there was associated with Hebrews, with the Judaism religion that there ever was and that there ever will be. They dedicated their life to studying scripture, memorizing it, teaching it, and living all of their life around it. I want you to notice how Paul describes his past in Judaism here. He doesn't say, you have heard of my former beliefs. He doesn't say, you have heard of my former philosophy, my principles. He said, you have heard of my former life in verse 13. Literally every aspect of Paul's life was Judaism. And so strong was his dedication to his religion that anybody that stood against it, he was willing to kill them and persecute them. Verse 13, the, the ESV says, I persecuted the church violently. The King James Version says, Paul persecuted them beyond measure. The NIV says he persecuted intensely. The NET says he persecuted the church savagely. Paul savagely persecuted Christians. In the process, he devastated the church of God. If you look closely at this text, these, these two verses that I just read, you can see two marks of a people-pleasing system. And I want to talk about those two things. Number one, if you want to develop and if you want to produce a system of people-pleasers, keep them preoccupied with performance. Number one, you would keep people preoccupied with performance if you want to develop a people-pleasing system. In my experience of, of living under and working under people-pleasing leaders, I noticed that they are obsessed, they are absolutely obsessed with using two words, obedience and submission. And listen, I'm not gonna, just really quick qualifier here, obedience and submission are very good words in scripture. We are called in Romans 13 to submit to the authorities over us because God has placed them there. We are called in Hebrews 13 to submit to our leaders because they will give an account to God, our leaders even in the church. And so these are, obedience and submission are actually really good words and they're biblical words. But when they are used so frequently, so aggressively, and even manipulatively in order to control people, that's a problem in a people-pleasing system. I want you to listen to, to one of what my favorite authors says about people-pleasers in these systems. He says, for many reasons, followers sometimes obey or follow orders to avoid being shamed, to gain someone's approval, to keep their spiritual status or church position intact. This is not true obedience or submission. It is compliant self-seeking. There's a huge difference between those two things. This author says, when behavior is simply legislated from the outside instead of coming from a heart that loves God, it cannot be called obedience. It is merely compliance with external pressure. 
It's a difference there. Look down at your text at verse 14. Paul says he was advancing in Judaism. That is a present tense participle because his performance was something that was ongoing. It never stopped. And it is modified by this phrase, beyond many. That gives you an indicator that Paul himself, whether it was spoken, whether it was in front of people or not, he was comparing himself to other people based on spiritual marks of maturity. He was outdoing them in his performance. Later in this verse, he describes himself as as extremely zealous. People, People pleasers thrive in an environment of performance preoccupation. And the gospel is diametrically opposed to that. The second mark of a producing a people-pleasing system, if you want to produce people-pleasers, create a lot of unspoken rules. Create a lot of unspoken rules. Unspoken rules are those that govern unhealthy systems, but they are not said out loud. Because if they were said out loud, uh, then you'd have to actually live up to those things and and you realize, you don't realize that they even exist until you ultimately break those rules. Have you ever heard of uh, this rule before? It's something called the can't talk rule. Are you familiar with this? The can't talk rule is a, is a problem. You can't talk about anything because if you do talk about a problem, then it would have to be dealt with and things would have to change. That's an example of the, the can't talk rule. Guess what? If you speak about the problem out loud, now all of a sudden, you're the problem. Uh, Saul, isn't one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder? Following the strictest sects of your religion? We're we're not going to talk about that one out loud. All right? I'm persecuting because of my zealous attitude for God and for following him. Where's this in the text? Look down at uh, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Jesus talks about this when he says, you guys, to the Pharisees, you guys break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions. Um, These traditions here are, are are probably, I want to describe what one commentator says. He says, the traditions spoken of by Paul are probably not equivalent to just Jewish tradition generally, both written and verbal, but rather the special ancestral traditions of the party to which Paul belonged, a.k.a. unspoken rules. You want to produce a system of people pleasers? Have a preoccupation with performance, number one. Create a lot of unspoken rules. Number two, Paul thrived in that environment before he came to Christ. Number two in your outline, number two this morning, the problem. The production of a people-pleasing system, number two, is, is the problem. Now, if my car breaks down, I'm going to go to a mechanic, right, because I realize that I have an engine problem. If my laptop won't turn on in the morning when I get to work, I'm going to go to a tech guy because I know that I have a computer problem. If my teeth are hurting, I'm going to go to a dentist because I know that I have a dental problem. And if my marriage is struggling, I'm going to go to Brandy because she's always the problem, right? No, I'm going to go to myself 
because 110% of the time, I am the problem, right? If people are my problem, we would naturally go to people to solve the problem, right? Why don't you look down at verse 10? Let's get back up to Galatians 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a a servant of Christ. The The problem with pleasing people is not just a people problem. Paul actually says that this is a God problem. When Paul says he would not be a a servant of Christ, he is making this a worship problem. And he is taking this to the level of the heart. And the operative question of worship is always this. At any given moment, in any given time, who has the functional allegiance over your heart? At any given moment, in any given time, who has the functional allegiance and control over your heart? See, Paul is, Paul is dividing all of humanity into two categories here. And verse 10 is probably the, the clearest and the most important verse in the section of Scripture that I'm, I'm covering today. Paul is dividing every single person into one of two categories. Either you are pleasing people and therefore worshiping men, or you have set your heart on pleasing God, and therefore you are worshiping God. What Paul is addressing here is an issue of worship and it is an issue of idolatry. And when most people think of idols, they probably think of these handheld items that you put on the mantle of your fireplace that you pray to before you go to bed at night. Some of you, when you think about idols, you might think of idols of the heart, maybe greed, success, achievement. Whatever the reality is, the reality of our world today is that People are our idol of choice. We perceive that people have the power to give us what only God can give. And when that happens, we are worshiping men rather than worshiping God. In verse 10, this is is such a great verse. Uh, In Greek, man is actually fronted in the clause and God is put at the end of the clause. So literally we would read this. For man am I seeking the approval or God? And Paul is diametrically opposing those two things. It is either either man or it is God. He's bringing out the contrast between those two things. You probably noticed a a double reference in verse 10 to to this phrase, am I trying to please people? One of the things that Paul is probably being confronted with by the false teachers is that they are claiming that that Paul is, is pandering to the people. He's giving them a gospel that is void of law, that it's void of responsibility. He's teaching all this grace stuff to make people feel better about themselves. Trying to please men. Right? It's not what Paul's doing at all. Couldn't be more pleasing to God in this context. Look down at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says the gospel that he received is not man's gospel, and he identifies three things about that. Paul's gospel was not according to man. In its source, it was not from man. In in learning about it, the means of the gospel, it was not taught by man. And this actually means that Paul was in a, a very vulnerable position at this time in his life. 
Uh, he needed the community of faith to come around him so that they could affirm the true gospel that he was preaching. We'll talk about that, so I want you to hang on to it. Number one in your outline about people pleasers, the production. The production of a system, number two, is the problem. People pleasing is a problem of worship. People pleasing is a problem of idolatry. And Paul goes right for the heart at the beginning of this text. Number three in your outline is the changed person. And I wanna read just a, a lengthy section here about, this is basically Paul's autobiography. And in many times, especially in the book of Acts, we read about Paul's story. In Acts chapter nine, we have the story of the, the road to Damascus when the revelation, God revealed himself to, to Paul, to Saul, uh, as he was going to Damascus. There's two other times in the book of Acts that Paul shares his testimony, and, and this is the one time in Galatians that, that we see him share a lot about what happened after he trusted Christ. And where did the Lord take him? Look down at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anybody. I didn't go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. And if you mark in your Bible, you, make it, you might make a special reference to that phrase there. I went away to Arabia and I returned again to Damascus, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. I remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie, verse 21. Then I went to the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown to the person, in person to the churches of Judea, Judea that are in Christ. Verse 23, they were only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. And that has the definite article on it. He is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Um, I want to give you just a, a couple principles based on this testimony from, from the Apostle Paul. Things that we can learn from his example right? And here's the first from this text. Principle number one, only fools rush in. Only fools rush in. Now, when you study Galatians chapter one and you try to mesh this with the accounts of Paul's life in the book of Acts, things get a little hazy. It's hard to identify this three-year stint that he had in Arabia and put that in its rightful place in the book of Acts. How long exactly did Paul go away after his conversion? Was it a full three years? Was it the third year that he returned to Jerusalem? Uh, where does this fit into his ministry in Acts chapter nine specifically? Here's what we know for sure. And I want you again to look back at this phrase in verse 17. He says, Galatians chapter one, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. If Paul was really considerate and if it was very important for him to go to the powers that be in the church, the first thing he would have done is he would have went to the headquarters where the apostles were, and that was the city of Jerusalem. He didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before him. He went away to Arabia, and that is the place that he got a direct revelation from God. That is the place where Paul, we would say, uh, a resurrected Christ gave him 
a direct teaching and revelation of all of the things in the Old Testament that Paul knew as a Pharisee. He had memorized all those texts, and now he was being taught that they were fulfilled and led to the person in the work of Jesus in the gospel. Somewhere in the window of three years, Paul, that Old Testament Pharisee, this rabbi, this one that knew the law, that killed Christians who stood against the teaching of Judaism, got a a direct revelation specifically from God. This isn't a guy who immediately goes out and starts teaching. He doesn't go on the street corner and start evangelizing right away. He is saved, he has a radical conversion experience, and he goes away. And here's what he does. He studies, he learns, he goes back through all those texts that he knew, and he sees them in a completely different light that leads to the person of Christ. All of a sudden, everything starts clicking for him. The passages that were hazy in the Old Testament, the fog is lifted with this revelation in Arabia. For three years, Paul goes and studies before he enters any kind of official ministry position to understand the word of God. Listen, only fools rush in. Remember Moses? How many years it was? How many years it was when he tried to liberate the Israelites out of Egypt? He was 40 years old. What did he do? He killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand, remember? God says, "Mm, you're not quite ready. We're gonna need 40 more years. He comes back at the age of 80. For 40 more years, as a shepherd in desolate places, Moses has a training ground to teach him humility, to teach him something about this God that was revealed to him at the burning bush. What about Elisha? He spent so much time shadowing Elijah before he entered his ministry. What about Joshua, who shadowed with Moses before he entered into the promised land and led the people? What about the disciples? Three years they spent with Jesus. Did he give them opportunities to minister? Absolutely he did, but it was three years before he sent them out, before they were ready to teach the truth and to understand the gospel and to use it effectively in their evangelism and their their work of missions. Listen, only fools rush in. Take some time and learn the truth of Scripture. Get around guys who can disciple you and teach you the things of the faith that you so desperately need to learn. And perhaps, Brad, Scott, maybe we're saying this because we've been through our wilderness training at Dallas Seminary. And all these guys will tell you it was the best thing that ever could have happened to us as young theologians needing to learn God's word. Study create community, grow with the body of Christ. Make sure you understand the depths of the gospel and then go and preach it and share it with those who you know. Um, there, is, there is something to be said here for trusting God and, and witnessing right away. Campus Crusade has, has taken that model and they have done wonderfully with it. So don't hear me saying don't evangelize. Hear me saying this. Take some time and be discipled in the faith. Learn it, grow in it. As you teach, go and learn. Number two, principle from from this uh, autobiographical section here. Theology is best done in community. Theology is best done in community. Before I mentioned uh, earlier that Paul did not receive nor was he taught the gospel by man and this put him in a very vulnerable position, right? The gospel that he understood was, was from that revelation, the road to Damascus 
Uh, he had a, another guy that came alongside of him and, and taught him just a little bit about Jesus, but he was very, he was unlearned in terms of the gospel and, and really who Jesus was. Now, did you catch verses 18 and 19? Look back at verses 18 and 19. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, remained with him for 15 days. So, Paul did in fact go back to those who knew the truth and knew the gospel. He did go back to Jerusalem, and he met with Cephas. He met with Peter, the leader of the church. Um, if you ever uh, you know anything about farming, you guys, cattle, any, uh, we, we were in Kansas for about five and a half years doing ministry there, and almost all of our guys owned, owned cattle. They had some land on their farms, and it was just a handful or just massive herds. These guys were cattlemen. And uh, often the guys would, would experience the dynamic of having a cow that would go rogue in the herd. And actually there was nothing worse with a herd of cattle than having one rogue cow. One rogue cow will get through a fence where you don't want them to get through and then all the other cows will follow after, right? The Apostle Paul was, was on his own. He was in danger, he was very vulnerable of going rogue from the apostles and the truth of the gospel that they knew. But he does come back. He receives his direct revelation for three years. He does come back, and he talks to those church leaders, and he affirms and confirms that the gospel that he was preaching was the same gospel that they were taught by Jesus and through the resurrected Christ. Why? Because theology is best done in community. One of the worst things that we can do is isolate ourselves away from everything. You know, every major cult that has some kind of association to Christianity has started with one person in a Bible in the quietness and isolation of their study? That will not happen for the Apostle Paul. He does theology and community. He brings people along. He studies the text of Scripture, and he learns with other men and, and women. He does ministry with them. Now listen, if you struggle with being a people pleaser, uh, I want you to realize that this is an issue that can go very deep into all of our hearts. Um, this is not just a, a horizontal relationship issue with people. This is actually a vertical issue with God. Why is, let me, let me just ask you some questions as we close here, all right? Why is pe pleasing certain people so important to us? Why is it so important to you? What are you looking to gain from pleasing a certain person? Ultimately, what do you hope is achieved by it? What thoughts or actions do you prefer to keep hidden from others that will cast you in a better light? What do you do to please a person that you know for sure is unpleasing to God? Pleasing people can be, can be one of those, those sins, one of those tendencies that we struggle with, again, that has very deep roots, and we all know that deep roots never come out on the first pull. This is, this is a lifestyle that many of us have lived and learned over time that we are going to have to deal with over and over again and realize that it isn't just a people issue. This is absolutely a worship issue. Do you realize that, that the most pleasing thing that you can do for a person is to please God above all else? Do you realize that if you are pleasing God, you don't have to worry about pleasing people in any sense of the word? 
those who worship him and, and seek out his truth and learn scripture, they will be pleased with you if you live a life that is ultimately pleasing to God. Here's what I want you to think about because often our emotions will speak to us in many ways. I saw the Disney movie that, that came out about this not too long ago. Anger will speak to you. And here's what anger says. You're wrong. I'm right. Shame will speak to you. And here's what shame says. Shame says, I'm wrong. Fear says something completely different. When fear speaks to you, it says, I am in danger. But it says much more than that. When fear speaks, it almost always communicates vulnerability, need for something that you cannot provide for yourself or even control. I am not in control in this situation and it could lead to my death. I think the, the loudest thing that our fears will speak to us uh, is something about our desires. When we ask questions, what do we fear the most? That is a direct pathway to understanding this. What do you desire the most? We want something so bad, and we are terrified if we don't get it. So much so that all of our life is altered in order to get that thing. What do you want so badly that drives you to fear a person more than you fear God? Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? Do not fear him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear the one who can throw body and soul in hell forever. The gospel asks all of us to put our fears in order. The gospel asks all of us what do we fear the most that we need to lay at the foot of the cross so that we can live a life that can be described as fearing God more than fearing man. And of all the fears we struggle with, of all the fears that we could ever come across, none of them will even cast a shadow on the greatest fear of taking on the wrath of God. Do you understand that at Calvary, what Jesus did for us and how he can reorient our fears? Jesus took on the most fearful thing that any human being could ever take on. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus took on the wrath of God, and he was fearful. In fact, he was so fearful that he prayed to the Father, please take this cup from me in some way other than this. Let this pass in a different way. And ultimately, here's what he decided. You know what? I'm going to fear the Father more than I'm going to fear anything else. And when Pilate came to him and said, don't you realize that I have the power to crucify you or to release you? Remember what Jesus said to him? You don't have any authority except what's been given to you by the Father. He wasn't afraid of Pilate. He wasn't afraid of what any man could do to him. But as a human being, Jesus was fearful of taking on the wrath of God, but he did it courageously. And because Jesus took on the wrath of God for us, we can face any fear that this world places on us with courage in the very same way because we know that we are following him and serving him and fearing him more than we fear anything else. Listen, the Apostle Paul is an apostle who will not be a people pleaser. He will not fear people, but he will fear God. And that will be the most pleasing thing that he can do for God and for everybody else.
All right, let's pray. And actually, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. So if you guys are ready in the back, you can get ready. Father in heaven, um, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you took on for us what we couldn't take for ourselves when you went to Calvary's cross and took on the wrath of God. Um, I thank you that uh, because you have, you have done that for us, there is nothing in this world that we have to fear. I thank you that you have commanded us and you have given us a responsibility not to worship or serve anything created, but to worship and serve the creator who is blessed forever. And I pray that we would identify those things in our lives that we fear more than we fear you. And thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I, I pray that you would continue to draw us into the, to the truth of the gospel, to who you are, and to what you've done for us on our behalf. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray this morning. Amen.